Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We can declare together that holy, you are holy. You are our awesome, powerful God, that you've conquered death. You've given us rescue from our sins and the promise of eternity. We are so thankful, God, to know of your sovereign plan, that you are sovereign over all. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name, for you are great and do marvelous things. You alone are God. Father, thank you that we can declare this truth, even during these seasons of adversity and unrest in our world, Lord. Cause us to continue to seek your ways and pray for those who have no hope Father, may it spur us on to remind us that those around us who do, do not know you, Father, help us to use this opportunity to tell them of the hope that we have and that we, we want them to know of the great rescue you have planned and put into effect to rescue from our sin and the futility of life. Father, we grow weary of the deceitfulness of sin that we see around us, and sometimes how we can fall back into deceitfulness. Soften our hearts, Lord, to seek your ways. Thank you, God, that we are just sojourners in this world, and we want to trust you for the number of days that you have for us here, and how we have confidence that you have prepared a place for us. And, and during these times, as we think of the Ukrainian refugees and all of the adversity they're going through, Lord, it causes us to remember that right now we see in a glass dimly, but then face to face, that now we only know in part, but then we will know and we will understand even as we are fully known. Father, we thank you for so much for the way that Donnie and Emmy in Romania are reaching out to the Ukrainian refugees we thank you for their successful, uh, Donnie's successful delivery of supplies in Ukraine. In your name, draw many to yourself as both Donnie and Emmy declare who you are by their words and actions. And Lord, we thank you again for the safe arrival of Easton King. And I can't believe he's here with us this morning. We thank you for Easton and for Tabitha and Cord and just continue to strengthen Tabitha and Easton in these days. Uh, past his delivery. Lord, we lift up those in our body who are hurting and who need to know the reality of your presence. I pray for Jesse as he is suffering with a painful, terrific pain in his arm. Father, please give relief. We pray for Beth Campbell's mom as she suffers through a, a very powerful infection. Father, strengthen her. Sustain her. May she experience your sustaining power. And Lord, we thank you for Rachel's grandfather successfully coming through his surgery. Please, God, strengthen him during his recovery and rehab time. And we pray there will be no, no adverse reactions from the pain medicine. Father, thank you for Alan Bennett's and how he is continuing to trust you. Give the doctors wisdom in their decisions. Strengthen him and keep him free from infections and help the doctors to know what it would be best for the next step. We lift up Patty as she faces shoulder surgery Tuesday, Lord. Give wisdom and skill to the surgeons 
as they uh, repair what's wrong and give minimal pain, Father, we pray you would allow minimal pain and healing as she rehabs. And Father, how many of us have been where Daryl has been now with the decisions about his elderly parents, how we pray for your grace to over, uh, over be, to be over all that is done in the decisions that are made. May his mother accept uh, the fact that they are doing their best to take care of her. And we do pray for healing for his father. For Roger's sister, Lord, as she continues to fight cancer, please cause the treatments to be completely effective. And Vicki's daughter, Lindy, father, as she had a major surgery, Lord, keep, we pray for your healing power to continue until her well-being, as she is completely whole and well, her well-being in you. We pray for Nancy Griffin, Lord, and help her as she works with crew to have a, they may find a spot for her in Orlando close to help so she can stay close to her elderly mother to help her. Father, we are so grateful that we belong to you and that you see and know everything that concerns us. And you say that you will perfect everything that concerns us. And we trust you to intervene, to lead us, to direct us, to sustain us. We just want to keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord, because you are the author and perfecter of our story. So, Father, we thank you and we, we just commit this time to you. So thankful for Tim, for his teaching and give us open hearts today that we might continue to grow in godliness, to grow in your ways. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Janice. Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us for worship this morning at uh, service number two. And if you're in the overflow in gymnasium, in the gymnasium, I just hope that you'll withstand the temptation to pick up a basketball as we open the word together. And I'll remind you, this room is full at, at 1030 and we've got some overflow in the next room. Um, there is more space at 915. And so if you, if you ever feel like, boy, this is really cramped at 1030, um, feel free to get up an hour earlier and show up at 915. We have a little bit more space there. But um, and they call it the practice service at 9.15. Um, but I want you to know that I'm well prepared at 9.15 as well as at 10.30. Um, but it is a lot of fun to be in a little bit of a smaller setting um, together here. And, um, you know, I, I feel the, the need to give you an update on the, the front building. But before I do, I'm going to tell you, if y'all keep singing like that in a small space, we're going to stay here longer because it's really fun to be closer together in the times of worship. And, um, but uh, there is progress in the, the front building. Um, the, the way these things go is um, uh, always slower than you hope and plan. But um, we do have some more cleaning going on this week. The uh, first stage of cleaning was done. We found some things we wanted them to come back and address, and they're, they're coming back, and we'll have some more cleaning um, that's going to take place. And then from there, we'll get contractors lined up. And those contractors, just so y'all know, and so you, you, you know kind of what's happening in there, um, that's going to involve uh, flooring and paint and chairs and some electronics. And so it's going to be a better room when we get back there. But it is going to um, still take some time. And what I need to tell you as relates to the timing is that our, our real hope and our desire for a couple months has been that we want to be one service gathered all together for worship on Easter Sunday. And it's now clear that will not take place in that room. But 
I want you to just be alert, be aware. That's actually the message of the sermon. But be alert, be aware, um, because this week you're going to get some news about Easter Sunday. And we're still working out some details, but we're really excited about our plans that we're working through for Easter Sunday. Um, it's now less than a month away. That is April the 17th. The way that weekend's going to go, uh, we do know that on Good Friday, we're going to be worship, we're going to be gathered for a Good Friday service in this room. And we're going to do one service on Good Friday in this room. Easter Sunday, we're going to do one 1030 service, but it's going to be different. And, it, and we will work out the details of that and get those to you this week, but we're excited about it. It's going to be fun to be able to have a big service all together on Easter. So keep track of your email this week, and you'll hear an announcement about that, and we'll talk more and more in the weeks ahead. For today, what you need to know is that we are in the last week of our elder balloting process. And the way that works is we ask members of the church to nominate men to serve, qualified men to serve as elders of this church. And we ask the Spirit of God to guide your nominations, and then the elders will meet tomorrow night and look at the list and then select out of those the men that, are, that we feel God is leading to us to serve for the next term um, as elders. So if you're a member family, you have a ballot out there in the lobby. Um, there's an envelope for each member family. There's the number of ballots for each adult member within that household. Um, in there, and uh, 16 and up vote in this process. And so please do that, retrieve those today, and put them in the offering box, okay? There's, as we're, again, we're, we're in a different setting right now, but we have an offering box in this room, and we have one in the gymnasium also. They're both marked offering box and ballot box. We want you to put your tithes and offerings in that box. We also want you to uh, put your elder ballot in that box. Those ballots are due to the church office by noon tomorrow. So again, this is a, a members-only thing. And if you are in the new members process, you probably don't have an envelope until you're approved as a new member. But if you've been told that you are officially a new member, then you should have a ballot out there. Um, but please prayerfully consider who God is moving you to vote for in that, um, in that process, and we will trust the Lord to guide the process in both the congregational element and in the elder-directed phase of that. And also, uh, Scripture does say that if anyone aspires to be an elder, it is a noble thing. And so we want these men to not serve under compulsion, but we want God to be working in the hearts of men that will serve as elders also. Um, today, Sunday night stuff, normal tonight. We've got life groups, we've got Awana, we've got kids ministry. Um, but today, after the service, we have a men's ministry lunch, and that is going to be in the backstage of the front building there. Um, the, so that, build, that room is open, even though there's no ceiling tiles over there, but we're going to have lunch without ceiling tiles. Um, if you did not sign up for that, you can still come. I mean, we have about 40 guys signed up, um, but we have space for more if you didn't sign up, and if you're just hearing about it for the first time right now, or if you forgot about it, just come. You're welcome to join us. We will have enough food. We'll be there probably hour, hour and a half, and we'll get started pretty close to after um, this service wraps up. Next Sunday night, something different. We're hosting a movie night in this room, and it's a movie um, produced by the Voice of the Martyrs that, is, that depicts Christian suffering um, of, through persecution. And so we're going to show that movie and we're going to ask for, um, for any adults, you're, you're welcome to come. Uh, 
Uh, we'd love for you to be here 5.30 in this room. We'll serve some popcorn and some drinks. Um, youth will not meet as normal next Sunday, but will join us for the movie. Um, kids ministry, Awana ministry, will, will start a little bit earlier at 5.30, um, and we'll be upstairs. Um, and of course, parents, if you think you want your child to be in here, you, the kids can be in here. But because of the sensitive subject of Christians being persecuted, and there's some violence displayed in the movie, um, we want to have our normal kids' ministry and let parents make that decision, okay? So 5.30 to 7.30 Sunday night um, in this room for youth and adults and kids will be upstairs. Kids are actually going to end their night with a little bit of a movie and popcorn too because we don't want them to, to get mad at us for eating popcorn without them. But come um, bring the whole family Sunday night. And then following that, a few days after, but on Wednesday night, March 30th, we're going to uh, do a special evening prayer meeting on Wednesday at our normal prayer meeting time, Wednesday at 7 on March the 30th. We're going to have a night of worship and prayer for the global church. And uh, we're going to have God stir our hearts for our brothers and sisters that are suffering in other parts of the world on Sunday night the 27th. And then on Wednesday night the 30th, we're going to come together in prayer in this room. And the worship team is going to lead us in some singing and, and, and worship that evening, but we'll also gather in prayer in this room that evening, the 30th. So make note of that. Um, you're always welcome. We'd love for any of you to join us for a normal prayer night on Wednesday night at 7. That's in the prayer room in the front building. But on the 30th, we'll be out here and there'll be some worship as a part of that. Um, now I'm going to make uh, one more announcement that blurs the lines between sermon and announcement, okay? And because what I'm going to do is I'm going to make an announcement along with a portion of the sermon text for today. Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 4. Or sorry, starting in verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, when, when we really jump into the sermon in a few minutes, I'm going to really preach verses 5 through 38, which is plenty of verses. But 1 through 4 is a little bit different than 5 through 38, so I want to put special attention on it here as I go into our last announcement. Um, at our congregational meeting about three weeks ago, we shared with you the budget for the church for 2022. And we shared with you that in 2021, we stepped out in faith. And some of that was, uh, was in staffing changes. We knew that we were, um, we, were ex we were expanding our budget and we were doing so in faith, expecting that God would provide and provide with, with new families and new involvement and growth. And God has certainly done that. Um, it, it is amazing to see how the church has grown in recent months. And um, one of the weirdest but coolest experiences I've had was this week to meet with a couple who has been coming to our church for months now and had never been in the front building. And it's just odd to say, you're committed to this church, you've been here for months, and you've, you have no idea where my office is, you have no idea where the front door of the church is, because you've never been in the front building. Like, it, it's a weird season of time. There's no way around that. But it's really cool that in this season of time, God continues to bless us and grow our church. But we do have, have to let you know about where we stand financially as a church. Jerry told you three weeks ago we were expanding our budget again this year. 
And now at this point, as we near the end of the the first quarter of this year, we are behind in our giving, behind in in what we we need to receive weekly in order to fund the ministries of the church. This is not a crisis. This is not something that that the elders told me, hey, you got to tell the church that they got to give more immediately because we got to address this. I'm sharing it in the context of Luke 21, 1 through 4, because the responsible thing to do within a family is to tell you that at this point, financially, we are behind where we projected to be at this point. And so we need you to pray. We need some of you to give more. We, we need to all consider and be rightfully, uh, responsibly considering how we share our tithes and offerings with the work of Christ through the local church. But also, I share it in the context of Luke 21, 1 through 4, to tell you exactly why I'm not concerned. Because in this passage, there's something that might impress a, 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 a unwise observer. What would impress the unwise observer is the clank of the coins going into the offering box. And the rich, they have a loud clank, right? The, the rich give a lot. And it would be easily, easy for us to be worldly impressed with those that give a lot. And Jesus is 100% not impressed. In fact, in my mind, as I was reading this, I, I added a phrase, which you're not supposed to do, but as I added some interpretation to what Luke is saying, in verse 1 here, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he was not impressed. That's what Luke is actually saying, that Jesus was not impressed with gift number one from the rich. What impressed Jesus, enough to comment on it, was the gift of the one who gave everything out of poverty. And so I I give that as a reminder to you to say, uh, we do need to be prayerful and responsible um, with our church finances to fund the ministries of the church, the missionaries of the church, what we have seen God is calling us to do in our local community and around the world. We need to be responsible and give towards that. But also, we need to be the widow and not the rich person. And the message of the widow is not as simple as finances. The, the message of the widow, of what Jesus is saying there, and I've told you before, Jesus is way more comfortable talking about money than most of us are. Jesus likes to talk about money because it cuts to the heart. And if it makes you uncomfortable when the preacher talks about money, it's the same reason Jesus talked about money so much. Because it makes people uncomfortable, and it makes them really think about where their priorities are. And he uses the rich man to say his priorities are himself, and he gives out of the excess of what he has. He gives what he can afford in the, sense of, in the sense that he gives what does not hurt him. But the widow, the widow out of her poverty, gives all that she has. And the application for us is not just financial, to give all of your money to the church. It's not what I'm asking you, and I don't believe that's what God is asking. But I do believe that God is asking for all of you. I do believe that God is asking for, for all that you have in terms of resources, strength, your, your mental capacities, your relational capacities, your, even your work life, your family, your home. God wants it all as Lord and King. And so we are fully devoted to him. And out of that full devotion to him, we give. We make it all accessible to him to say, Jesus, lead where you will. Use what you need. I'm yours. And part of that one part of that is financial. So I'm going to lead us into a short just time of prayer for three things. Uh, number one, for the 
um, balloting process for our next generation of church leadership. Elders serve three-year terms, so whoever is elected in this process this weekend will serve a three-year term. But also for the building process and what Easter Sunday is going to look like, because I'm excited about it, because sometimes change shakes, shakes you up and results in some good fruit. But also for us to all walk in wisdom in how we give and support the ministry of the church, not just with our finances, but with all of our time and resources. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you because you are good. And right before I came up here, we were singing about heaven. We were singing, let it be today. Let's sing the song of eternity today. Because in the times of darkness in which we live, in times of sorrow, times of confusion and discord, boy, do we need the hope of heaven. And so, Father, may the hope of heaven be close on our minds in every opportunity for discouragement and every opportunity for dismay. May you, Father, remind us of the hope we have in you. And in that hope, may we, Father, be led by you in the selection of elders and leaders for this next season of time. I pray that you would raise up new leaders within our church of every age range, both through this elder process and through the deacon process that will soon follow. I pray for those in the new member process, Father, for them to get integrated quickly and to serve in our church well. And we pray that all gifts of people within this church would be utilized for your glory and for your kingdom. Give us wisdom in how to do that. And Father, for this building, um, as we uh, now complete um, soon, we'll complete three months of not worshiping in our main um, building. Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity to do so elsewhere. We thank you for the resource of this room that you have provided for us. We thank you for the flexibility of your people that we have without complaint adjusted and adjusted meeting times and, and adjusted the setting. And Father, it's been different, but it's still been good. And you've borne fruit through this. And Father, we ask for you to move us back to our main room, but not before you're ready. And Father, if there's more for us to learn while we're worshiping in this room, if there's more for us to be challenged in our faith, if there's more for us to learn from worshiping in a smaller setting or worshiping just out of our comfort zone, Father, may you continue to move and teach us those lessons. And Father, for Easter Sunday, I pray for a blessed day of celebrating the resurrection. And Father, we do believe that what you are doing will be amazing. And Father, we want to be all assembled together on that day, and we pray for you to give wisdom to open the right doors for us. And finally, Father, we pray for wisdom in how each of us, as members of your body, serve as members of this body, that we would be fully committed to you, and out of our full commitment to you, we would make ourselves available to our church. And that means our time, that means our hearts, our minds, our resources, our gifts, and including our financial resources. Father, we pray that you would bless the finances of this church, that we would continue to be able to fund the ministries we believe you've called us to do. And Father, we believe that you are working and moving. So Father, continue to grow us as we step out of our comfort zones and serve you in these dark and confusing days, Father. May we be wholly committed to you. And in the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Now open with me to Luke chapter 21, verse 5. And we're going to talk about signs. One of the most important things to learn as you're um, first getting your driving experience is what all of the signs mean. And as you start to get to that point where you're getting your driver's license, or if you've had a child that's, that's reaching that point, you've got to go through all of the different tests and figure out, make sure that they know exactly what each of the signs means and what you're supposed to do in response to each traffic sign, be it a light or be it a, a sign on the road. But we also know that we have signs of the times, and it's very easy for us to talk in days like today where it seems like the world is spiraling out of control and there's discord, there's violence, there's immorality, there's sin everywhere we look. It is easy for us to say, ah, clearly, this is the sign of the end. Look at how bad the world is. And yet, as I opened Luke 21 this week, it's also important to note that whenever I approach a sermon text, I look at, at how it's been preached before in different stages. And so I looked, I read one sermon from 160 years ago on the same passage. I read a sermon from 400 years ago on this same passage. I even read a sermon from 1600 years ago on this same passage. And you know what they all said? The end is near. Because you know what Jesus said 2,000 years ago? The end is near. And guys, it can be confusing. It can also be a bit wearying. Because at a certain point, you sort of run out of energy for the end is near. Because you've you've heard it a lot. And the longer you live, the more global wars you see, the more global incidents you see, the more discord, the more societal issues, the more you see sin rampant, the more you think, okay, this is it. This is when the world is really going crazy. This is a sign of the end. But then that situation kind of calms down. There's another crazy situation. And we all sort of have limited capacity for, for those crises of the world. And so when do we know that the end is really, really near? And, and how do we prepare, how do we live in readiness for that? There's an old preacher story that gets told about two men that were on the side of the road holding up two signs. One held up the sign, the end is near. The other one held up the sign, turn around before it's too late. And as they held up the signs... They were working together and standing by the side of the road, and people just kept driving by them. And you know what would happen is people would drive by, they'd get over the hill that was right behind them, and they would hear these loud crashes one after another of just vehicle after vehicle crashing. And they looked at each other, and one of them said, you know what, we should probably be a little bit more clear. We should be more straightforward. Let's just put up a sign that says, the bridge is out ahead. (laughs) Because at a certain point, We've all seen those guys, right? The, the sandwich sign guys on the street corner. The, the end is near. And they, and, and they have their list of reasons of global events for why the end is near. And we get weary of that. And we think, really? Really? Because you, know, you said that 20 years ago now. Is, it, is this really the end is near? Let's look at what Jesus says. We'll ask Jesus to answer this question for us. But just as a word of, of warning as we approach this passage... It's a hard one, okay? It's a confusing one because as it happens in biblical prophecy as a whole, more than one event can be referred to at the same time. That's that's just the way biblical prophecy works. 
and you look at the Old Testament prophecies, there's lots of Old Testament prophecies that are partially fulfilled when Jesus shows up the first time and partially fulfilled when Jesus shows up the second time. And the prophets don't always spell it out for the reader what happens at the first advent, what happens at the second advent, what happens when Jesus comes as a child, what happens when Jesus returns as conquering king. Well, this is one of those that Jesus clearly refers to two future events. And I'll give you the outline now for how we'll unpack this, okay? Uh, Future event number one, the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed. Jesus is explicit in stating that. That will happen. Future event number two, Jesus is coming back and in the clouds. That future event number two, that will happen. And Jesus is talking about that in this passage. But then point number three for how we unpack this passage certain signs will accompany one or both of those. And that's where it gets a little bit murky because some of the signs are clearly Jerusalem being destroyed, which happened in 70 AD. So it happened past for us, future for Jesus as he's saying this. Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed 35 to 40. We'll say that. 35 to 40 years after Jesus delivers this address, the temple and Jerusalem were destroyed by the Romans. Some of this was fulfilled then but some of it has not yet been fulfilled. Some of these are signs for for events that are still to come. And navigating through what speaks of one, what speaks of the other, and what could potentially speak of both, that's that's where the waters get muddy here. But if you walk with me through muddy waters this morning, it gets really simple at the end. Because the application is very, very clear. Two commands. Stay aware, stay awake. And the hard part about those commands is, what are we watching out for? Because the signs get confusing. But I think we'll get there in the end if we can wade through the muddy waters together first. So we'll start in verse 5. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when, they, when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid, or do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Okay, so here's Jesus' introduction, and, and here's the setting, okay? The setting's important. This is the Mount of Olives. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the same story of the same sermon that Jesus preaches on the Mount of Olives. Now, Jerusalem, on a hill. Then you, and, and anytime in the Bible you talk about Jerusalem, you walk up to Jerusalem because it's on a hill. The temple is on the top of the hill in Jerusalem. But then you walk down the hill, and you come to this little valley, and then you walk up the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives, just so you know, is right next to Jerusalem. And at the Mount of Olives, you can see the temple. You can see Jerusalem. In fact, the temple could be seen from a long way away because, again, huge structure on a hill. This is where Jesus is. He's just walked out of the temple and onto the Mount of Olives. Now, what I read to you earlier was the story of the widow and the rich guy that were both giving money in the temple. And Jesus told his disciples, don't be impressed by the wrong thing. The rich guy, not impressive. The widow, impressive. And then they walk out of the temple, or, and they walk down the hill, and they start to, to walk up the Mount of Olives, and they're, 
They're admiring the temple. And Jesus again says the same thing. Don't be impressed by the wrong things. But here, in verse 5, what are they impressed by? The bricks. They're impressed by the stones of the temple and how the stones are adorned. And, and some context is important here. Because let's give the disciples some credit here. The stones were impressive. Okay? The historian Josephus says that some of those stones were as much as 60 feet long. That's a big brick. Josephus measures them as 60 feet by, by 9 feet by 10 feet or something like that. A huge brick, 60 feet long, 10 feet high, 9 feet wide. That's an amazingly large brick. We don't have bricks like that in this. I mean, look, at we see bricks. We don't have bricks like that. So that's a huge brick. It's something to be impressed by. Also, they're not just impressed by the bricks themselves. They're impressed by the adorning or the offerings on the bricks. And let me tell you what that is. This temple, okay, this is not Solomon's temple. So quick biblical history. Solomon's temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. So if you remember, David wanted to build a temple. God said, no, Solomon's going to build a temple. Solomon built a temple. It was big, impressive, amazing. And then it was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then the Babylonians allowed certain people in the book of Ezra to go back under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And it's told in the, in the prophecy of Haggai, so books of Remember, Nehemiah builds the wall, and you have Ezra building the temple. You have Haggai, the prophet, is there in those days. And the, the temple is rebuilt, okay? And as the temple is being rebuilt, there are people that look at that temple that think, oh, man, that's nothing like it used to be. Because the resources for reconstructing Solomon's temple are not there. So the second temple is not nearly as impressive as the first one was. But then... But then this, this is not that one either. This is Herod's temple. Herod was not, was not a real Jew. He was a fake Jew, appointed by Romans, appointed to rule over Jerusalem and to lead the Jewish people. Okay? And Herod built a temple that was not for the glory of God, but for the glory of Herod and the pacification of the Jews. Herod wanted to allow the Jews to practice their religion and to offer sacrifices, but so much of the impulse for constructing this huge temple that exceeded the size and the footprint of Solomon's temple. The, the impulse for that was so much about Herod's own glory and Herod's own building and construction prowess. He wanted to be the guy that built the big stuff. That was Herod's life. That was the temple we're talking about here. Oh, by the way, other important thing, it's not done when Jesus is talking about it. The construction of that temple took over 60 years, and it was not completed until years after Jesus gave this address. So part of what is so impressive is they're watching it be installed. And remember, when you see a building and it's just there, it's really impressive. But when you see how the, how the building is being constructed and how these 60-foot bricks are being installed into the temple, that's actually even more impressive. So they're seeing the, the temple go up. It's functional at this point. There's people obviously offering sacrifices. Jesus is teaching there every day. It's an impressive building. Jesus says, don't be impressed by a building. Oh, I forgot to tell you about the offerings. Golden offerings on the bricks, okay? Because the people of Jerusalem were allowed to give their own gold towards the building fund of the temple, and so then on the bricks of the temple itself, there were these golden adornments 
uh, shapes and, and models and, and just decorative gold um, sculptures that were put onto the bricks, okay? That tells you something about Jesus' prophecy. Now, Jesus says that there will come a time when one stone will not be left on another that will not be thrown down. Now, that's not totally true. Some of those stones are actually there today and are part of the wailing wall, okay? So Jesus is not literally saying there will be no stones that will be connected. He is using an idiom to communicate the, the destruction of the temple will be significant. The goal of the Romans in destroying the temple, which happened in 70 AD, again, 35 to 40 years after Jesus is doing this, there, Jesus is saying the destruction will be so significant, they won't just make it non-functional anymore. Like that would be one goal, to just say, we'll make the temple to where the Jews can't offer sacrifices, they're going to be dismayed. No, they go beyond that. They destroy it. They destroy not just the building itself, but the whole temple mount and the different bricks. Why? Why would they do that? Because there's golden adornments all over the bricks. And so it's not just about Roman soldiers following Roman commanders' orders and destroying the temple now. Now it's, hey, there's gold connected to that brick. Let's chip away at that brick and let's get the gold out of the bricks. And that's what led to such an incredible destruction of the temple. That the hatred that the Romans had for the Jews, along with the sinful impulse of wanting to harvest that gold that was, that was adorning the bricks, led to just a complete and total destruction of it. Jesus knew it was going to happen before it happened. Jesus is telling these guys, it will be destroyed far faster than it was constructed. In fact, the building was finished for seven years. Built for 60 years, finished for seven years, and then destroyed. It's almost like God wasn't concerned about the temple built for Herod's glory, right? Because when Jesus comes in and clears out the temple in the, the, the earlier story that we talked about a couple weeks ago, what Jesus is doing is he's removing the distraction from the temple, and he's taking his rightful place in the temple as he's the one that interprets the law. Jesus is the one through, which, through whom we understand the scriptures, not the teachers of the law in first century Jerusalem. So Jesus is saying, you don't come to the temple to find life with God. You come to me to find life with God. That's what Jesus says when he pushes out the distraction out of the temple. And Jesus and God the Father are unconcerned when the temple is destroyed because the way to God is not climbing up the mountain to go to the temple. The way to God is going to Jesus. So clearly, okay, part one. Jesus says the temple's going to be destroyed. He gives information about that. He gives warning about when these days will come. But then in verse 9, he says, the end will not be at once. And in context of verse 9, he says, do not be terrified every time you hear about a war. Do not be terrified every time you see society going bad, because the end will not come all at once. So he's preparing them to separate. There's going to be a destruction of Jerusalem. It's going to look really bad. It's going to look like the end of days. When, the, when Jerusalem is destroyed. And then he goes on in verse 10. These are still signs of the coming destruction of Jerusalem in verse 10 and following. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, great earthquakes, various places, famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you. They will persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it in your minds 
not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So Jesus has a couple categories of predictions here. Number one, uh, national uh, kingdom global conflict. Nations against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms, global combat, global armed conflict. That's what he's describing here as, as prerequisite one. Prerequisite two, natural disasters. He lists earthquakes, famines, pestilences, terrors from heaven, which sounds really scary. And that's like, that's, that's astronomical events. That, that's stars, shooting stars and meteors and, and things like that. That's what he means by terrors from heaven. But also, not just global conflict, not just natural disasters, also they will lay hands on the followers of Jesus in verse 12. You guys will suffer. That's what he says. But here's the crazy thing Jesus says. And in the modern world, we would call this insensitive of Jesus. Because Jesus lays out this incredible suffering that's going to come. And then he says, but guys, listen, this is your opportunity. He says, global war, natural disaster, personal persecution that will end in some of you dying, and boy, what an opportunity you have. That's what Jesus says. And some of us might be offended by that sense of, Jesus, you're talking about suffering here. This sounds bad. Jesus, aren't you concerned for the hardship we're going to face? Jesus is, of course, concerned for the hardship that his church faces. But Jesus can be concerned about the hardship his church faces and still encourage you to see your hardship as an opportunity. Jesus can do both at the same time. And that's what he says about the age leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's what can carry over fully into our age today. Read sometime this week Philippians chapter 1 and see Paul's perspective. We're not going to go there this morning, but the, the short version is Paul is arrested for preaching Jesus. They literally lay hands on him. And as he's arrested, he writes a letter to the church in Philippi saying, you know what, it's, it's a good thing. It's a good thing I was arrested because I have an opportunity I have an opportunity to present the gospel within the imperial court. I have an opportunity to present the gospel and even Caesar's own guards are coming to receive the gospel because of my imprisonment. Paul sees suffering as opportunity. Why? Because Jesus told him to be ready for that. And so we, but one of the first applications we can make from this whole passage, recognize you will suffer. Jesus cares when you suffer. Jesus also expects you to make the most of the opportunity when you suffer. Not because he's not concerned about you, but because he knows that suffering opens doors for the expansion of the gospel. When Mark um, describes this sermon that Jesus is preaching um, on the Mount of Olives, Mark 13, Mark says the gospel will be preached to the nations. Why is the gospel preached to the nations? In part, because the church scatters. And that's... That's now the call that we continue, to preach the gospel to the nations. But we recognize as we preach the gospel to the nations, we're prepared for suffering. We see suffering as an opportunity. We see persecution even as an opportunity to continue to present the message of the gospel. Jesus says a couple uh, hard things here. Number one, uh, he says, um, 
don't think about what you're going to say before you say it, right? At least that's what it sounds like he's saying. It's not actually what he's saying, but when he says, commit now to not meditate over what you say before you say it, what he's saying is, don't derive for yourself some really creative, apologetic way out of suffering to say exactly the right thing so that you won't be put in prison. What Jesus is saying is just speak the truth and let the Spirit speak through you. When suffering comes, speak the truth, and God's going to speak through the people that are indwelt by the, by the Holy Spirit. He's, not, he's saying being indwelt by the Spirit is better than being seminary trained in times of persecution. And listen, I'm a guy that's got a lot of seminary training under my belt. But, it's not, but Jesus is not telling you, make sure you get all the clever answers all together, all lined up, so that you can have all the right things to say in exactly every scenario. It's a little bit overrated sometimes. What you need is to be ready for the Spirit of God to speak through you. Same thing he says in Luke 12, when he says, when they bring you before the synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't be anxious about what to say and how to defend yourself. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Speak the truth of the gospel. Know the gospel. Be ready to rest in the Spirit. Be ready to let the Spirit speak through you the power of the gospel. Jesus also says something else strange. He says, some of you might die, and then he says, not a hair of your head will be affected, which sounds kind of weird. It feels like if I die, the hair is going to be my, my least of my concerns, right? But what Jesus is saying here is when he says not a hair of your head will be harmed, is he saying that you can die in this life and still be eternally unharmed. That's the message there. And so be ready in times of persecution. Be ready to, hit, to feel the worst of it from a physical sense in this life and to be eternally unscathed. Verse 20, he continues. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by enemies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flay, flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. He talks about nursing mothers and pregnant mothers. And why is, why is Jesus being hard on mothers and babies in this passage? But if you've ever been a parent of an infant, you've probably had that thought of, I oh, can't believe I brought this child into the world for this, at this season. Look at all of the, the distress in the world. Look at all of the sinfulness. Look at all of the shame. And you know how, how hard it is to raise an infant in difficult times. And Jesus is saying it will be hardest on those young mothers who just want to protect and want to provide, and they are fleeing because destruction is coming. And he says that destruction, again, he's specifically talking about Jerusalem, 70 AD, Rome right now. And he says this desolation will continue until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So what's the time of the Gentiles? Right now. Where we live right now, welcome to the time of the Gentiles. Because the gospel is still going forth to every nation, like Mark 13 says. We're still, the gospel message is being presented. This is not a season of salvation history where the nations have to come to Jerusalem to hear the truth at the Temple Mount. 
This is a season in the history of salvation where the truth goes from the people of God out into the nations. The the nations don't come to Jerusalem. The church goes to the nations. That's where we are right now. And And the church preaches the gospel in the times of the Gentiles so that the nations will see and will hear. So now in verse 25, he starts talking about This is where it's clear. Jesus is not talking about Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem 70 AD anymore. Now he's clearly talking about something that is still in the future for us, not just in the future for them, when he originally said it. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. So, this category has three main signs, okay? I told you, the signs of the coming destruction of Jerusalem, he had a list of signs there. This has three that are pretty similar, okay? This is where it gets confusing, How do we know when Jerusalem's about to be destroyed? Well, there's going to be wars and natural disasters. How do we know when Jesus is going to come back? Well, there's going to be wars and natural disasters. And and this list are very similar. But the unique thing that Jesus puts in this list, I I think, is so interesting. Because what Jesus adds to this list that he doesn't talk about as much in the fall of Jerusalem is verse 26. People will be fainting with fear and with foreboding about what is coming on the world. And I want you to notice that in these few verses here, there are two different physical postures by two different groups. Okay, You have the people that faint in fear, and you have the people that straighten up and raise their heads. So church, we're not in 70 AD anymore. We're in today. Okay, This is for us. This is for you, clearly. There are implications in the other for us, certainly. This is 100% for you. We do not look at the events of the world and faint with fear and foreboding. We straighten up and we lift up our heads. And so this is the posture of the church in the times of crisis. This opportunity to bear witness that he talked about in verse 13, this is our opportunity to bear witness. When the world faints with fear, the church straightens up, and the church lifts up her head. And so, if we find ourselves in a place where we are so obsessed with all of the events of the world, that we are constantly in that, we're, we're addicted to the news cycle. And whatever the news cycle is at the moment, that's what we're thinking about and reflecting on the most. I think that's one of the things that Jesus is telling us is a trap because he's telling us not to live in fear and foreboding of that news cycle, of the wars and the tumults all around. He says, don't don't assume, verse 9, that all these things are going to happen all at once. Don't assume that every crisis means the end of the world. But also, live with your head up. Live with your eyes open. Don't faint in fear, but when the world faints in fear, stand up and be ready to give the answer. This is what Jesus says about his return. And he gives another sign here, verse 29. 
he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So Jesus is still talking about him coming back, and now he starts talking about fig trees. Jesus has a thing with fig trees, and in this particular week of his life, he has a thing with fig trees. Now, Mark tells a story that Luke doesn't tell about when Jesus, before he clears out the temple, they're walking, again, Mount of Olives to temple, okay? Downhill, up a hill, into the city. Downhill, up a hill, into the city. In Mark, there's a story of a fig tree. And there's a fig tree along the side of the road that has leaves on it and no fruit on it. And it makes Jesus mad for some reason. So Jesus curses it. Then Jesus goes into the temple, clears out the temple. Then they walk back because they spend every night, and we see it here in verse 21. The disciples and Jesus are spending every night. Essentially, the word there is for camping out. They're camping out on the side of the Mount of Olives. Now, this is the Passover week, and so there's a bunch of people in Jerusalem that's not an abnormal thing to just count, camp out at the Mount of Olives. But they're camping out at the Mount of Olives. They walk into the city past the fig tree. Jesus doesn't like it. He curses it. They walk out of the city past that same fig tree later in that day, and the fig tree is withered. It had leaves earlier in the day. Jesus cursed it because it didn't have fruit. By the end of the day, it was withered. No leaves, no, life of, no signs of life or anything. And now, a couple days later, Jesus is talking about fig trees again. And it's significant that at the same spot, he's talking about fig trees again. Maybe that exact fig tree isn't where he's standing, but it's probably in view because if you've been to the Mount of Olives and walked down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, you can see because of elevation, if there was a tree on the path, you're going to see it from where you are, okay? So that fig tree that was withered was in view as he's given this parable. He says, when you see dead things come alive, when you see fruit where there was not fruit before, know that the end is near. Now, there's a couple different ways you could, you could go with this. You could say that the fig tree is emblematic of the nation of Israel. And when the nation of Israel starts to bear fruit again, then you know that the end is near. But I, I think it's, it's better to just generally see this as the people of God, that the people of God will show greater signs of life as the end comes. And guys, look what this does. As the days get darker, the fire of the church gets brighter. That, that's what this parable does. As the suffering for the church increases, so does the proclamation and the expanse of Christ's kingdom. So that literally, as the scripture tells us, the gates of hell cannot withstand the expanse of Christ's church. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That you want to know when the end will come, everything out there is going to look really bad, but the church is going to be bearing fruit. People are still going to be coming to Christ, and the world's going to be looking at that and be like, that doesn't make any sense, because look at how messed up the world is, and people still believe in this Jesus stuff. And the world won't have an explanation for it. And that's exactly what Jesus says is going to happen, and when we need to have our minds most alert, our eyes most open, so that we're ready for the fires of revival to come upon Christ's church and the kingdom to be, to be built in an exceptional way as the end draws near. Okay? So, I said we got some muddy waters in through there. I'm really good at hand gestures. Verse 34. This is where it gets really simple, and this is, this is where we wrap everything up in a really simple sense. Verse 34. Watch yourselves. You say, well, what do I do about all this? 
What do I do about global war? What do I do about, about pestilence? What do I do about famine? I don't know. It's a little overwhelming. Watch yourself. Simple application. Verse 34. Watch yourself, lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, that, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went and lodged on the mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. A couple things as we wrap this up. Watch yourself. The clear command of this whole chapter, watch yourself. Watch the world, yes. Watch yourself. And when times get tough, do not be weighed down. What might weigh you down in this passage? The pursuit of pleasure. The pursuit of worldly pleasure. Church of Jesus, Pay attention so that you see when the world is going wrong, you're not distracted by your own pursuit of pleasure, but you are focused on building the kingdom of God. Distraction. Drunkenness, he talks about. The, it, the problem with drunkenness is that you are both seeking pleasure and you're seeking distraction. And number three, you're numbing the pain of this world. That's what the drunkenness and dissipation is all about. You can, you can pursue drunkenness for lots of different reasons. Pleasure, distraction, and numbing the pain of this world. And he's saying that's what's going to be the problem here, is that the church is going to be distracted. The church is going to be numbed. The church is not going to be ready. So you guys, followers of Jesus, watch yourselves so that you're ready. But then also he says, stay awake. One of the things I love about the Bible is the way there are certain things that just kind of pop off the page at different moments. Like when Jesus says in verse 36, stay away at all times. And in verse 37 says, then he went and slept for the night. Like that, that's really what's happening here. Verse 36, Jesus says, stay awake at all times. He is not meaning literally Christians aren't allowed to sleep. Because then he goes into his tent on the side of the Mount of Olives and goes to sleep. Christians have to have this balance of awake and aware of what's going on in the world and resting in Christ. And actually being able to put your head on the pillow at the end of the night and say, God has also called me to rest. He's called me to watchfulness, but he's called me to rest. He's called me to wait, but he's called me to work while I wait too. And living in that tension is how you live at the end of the world. So we stay awake as we watch for the signs, take the opportunities that suffering provides for us to speak the truth of the gospel, and we pray not for suffering to stop, not according to this passage. We pray for endurance in the midst of the suffering. We watch ourselves, we stay awake, the two primary commands of this passage. I'm going to close by asking you guys a question. What are Christians here for? Why are we here at the end of this age? All this passage is about is the end of the world, the end of the age. So here's the question. What are Christians here for now at the end of the age? Four things. Two from the Sermon on the Mountain, two additional ones from this passage. And I'll go ahead and ask the band to come up while I'm giving these. Number one, we're here as a preservative. What Jesus calls salt. We are here to preserve the earth 
while it remains, to serve with acts of kindness and grace to those created in the image of God that have not yet turned from their wicked ways. And we preserve the earth by our very presence and by the good work that we do to serve others in these dark days. But we also serve as light, the city on the hill that cannot be hidden. Because why? When darkness comes and people are fainting in fear, they need a lighthouse to cling to. They need a source of light to run to. And that's why we're here for the dark days, for when it gets really, really bad and there's no hope anywhere else. That's why the church bears fruit at the end, because all competitors to the gospel are seen as empty and fake as they have always been. And the light of Christ burns all that much brighter. But we're also here, as Jesus said in this passage, to speak with mouths of wisdom and to give an answer for the hope that is in us in meekness and in fear, to recognize that when opportunities come. And we're also here to pray for ourselves and for the world. As I said, we'll do on the 30th to pray for our brothers and sisters in times of great trial and suffering all around the world. But also to pray for the lost, that they would turn and receive the hope of Christ. But we also pray for ourselves, not for suffering to end, but for the church to endure when the suffering comes. And so while we're left here, let's do something. Let's stand up and sing. We'll sing with the breath that God gives us return his praise back to him and prepare for the eternal song that we will all sing together. And as we go this morning, we're going to go out as ambassadors, as salt and light, to do what Christ has called us to do, commissioned us as disciple makers in the expanse of his kingdom. You give life I love you bring light to the darkness you give hope you restore every heart that is broken great are you Lord to pray is your grace 
before the Lord. And Father, we just want to take one more opportunity to proclaim your greatness and to say that at the end of the age where we live today, well, we need you. We need your hope. We need the confidence and assurance that's only available through you. Because Father, as we scrap our way through life, we are continually reminded that we can't do it on our own. Not in our own power. Not in our own wisdom. And so, Father, we proclaim your greatness and we proclaim our weakness. And every time we proclaim your greatness, may we remind ourselves that we are then proclaiming our weakness. And your strength is made perfect in our weakness. And you move in our dependence. So, Father, we bless you this morning. We thank you for showing your greatness in love and sending Christ so that wicked sinners could be made righteous, so that aliens could be brought into the family, so that those were against you, so that rebels could be brought to peace. We praise you for that, Father. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the confidence we have. And in the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Before we close this morning, I've got, again, for the second week in a row, some new members to introduce. So, um, Elliot, I'm going to ask you to join. Uh, Lane and Mason are here. Mason's on the guitar, but you can put that up and stand by your wife as Lane makes her way up here. And I'll just introduce... Scoot over here. Let them come on up. Um, i got to get everybody on camera. Smile for the camera. Um, this is Elliot Hoffert. He's usually on the other side of the camera. Um, but uh, Elliot is a teenager who has grown up in this church, and, um, but his parents joined um, uh, long before he had a relationship with Christ. And he has come to join on his own testimony and on the, his own confidence and his assurance of salvation. And so we're happy to welcome him in as a member of our body as well. And then this is Mason and Lane Tanner. And uh, they have uh, one daughter, Ella, who is upstairs. And they are um, new to our family here at Fellowship. And they have um, been such a joy to, to get to know as they're both involved in discipleship studies and uh, Mason involved with men's ministry and, and um, Lane with women's things and um, had 
gotten Ella involved, and they've just jumped right in to um, the life of the church as they've met Jesus and grown in Jesus and seen what it means to follow after him. And these two, um, listen, Elliot's great too, guys. Um, But um, Mason and Lane are a joy to see the way they are growing with Christ and uh, and growing in love for, for him and following after him at this church. So I'd invite you all to come up and just say hello and welcome them in to fellowship here at, um, at our church and to um, just introduce yourselves. So now, if you would all stand, we'll close with the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.